Hey guys, we've got a great Sound of Young America show coming up for you with Adam Carolla. It's a big honking fat one, too. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, me and Adam are kind of talkers. So uh, it's a big, fun show. I just want to remind you that it's Maximum Fun Drive Time. We'll have a couple of little Maximum Fun breaks in the show. Uh, but if you'd like to donate to support our show, MaximumFun.org slash donate is the place to go. Um, it's not important to me how much money you give us, but rather that you support us. Um, if you like this show, if bringing you stuff like this interview with Adam Carolla is important to you, I ask that you please uh, make the effort. Uh, hop online. It's very easy. You'll get some free gifts and, and all kinds of cool stuff. And uh, thank us for what we do with uh, a little bit of money to support our operation. Now, here's that interview with Adam Carolla. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Adam Carolla, is probably best known for his television work as uh, the co-host of The Man Show, as a uh, uh, field correspondent and one-time competitor on Dancing with the Stars, as the host of his own late-night talk show on Comedy Central, uh, among many other projects. He's also a radio veteran, having hosted his own morning show, uh, one of the replacements for the Howard Stern Show for a number of years. And, of course, having made a name for himself originally as the uh, co-host of the popular syndicated radio show and uh, later MTV television show, Loveline. Um, he got booted from his radio gig uh, just a little bit more than a year ago and decided to take the opportunity to go independent. He's been podcasting ever since, and his podcast, the Adam Carolla Podcast, is one of the most popular on the Internet. Um Adam, welcome to the Sound of Young America. It's great, great to have you here. Great to be here, Jesse. You talk a lot about uh, your childhood on your show. Sure. And um, you grew up in North Hollywood, which is which is not that far from where we are right now. No. Um, you know, ha half an hour's drive north and west. And, um, sure. I, I get the impression um, that you grew up in a household that was almost completely... Like I don't want to say neglectful, but like apathetic towards you. Like I, I get indifferent, the indifferent. Yeah, I, uh, well, it's funny. I was just talking to someone about this on the ride in because I was doing a having a conversation with a radio station in San Francisco about my middle name, and most people think my middle name is Lakers. Um, <laughs> Now, the reason they think my middle name is Lakers is because when I was at the DMV and I was renewing my license in 1987 or 88 during one of uh, the Lakers, you know, Showtime uh, playoff runs, I wrote the name Lakers in in the blank space that had been giving me the stink eye on every form since I started filling things out. Because, in fact, I don't have a middle name. And if you don't have a middle name, you can just sort of write in whatever you want in a middle name and... If you look at my driver's license, it says Adam Lakers Corolla, and it's been twenty years. <laughs> How do you? I mean, don't they? Don't they demand some kind of? No. Do they just assume that they didn't bother to put it on the birth certificate? Yeah, listen, you, I could have popped the N word in there, and the guy <laughs> behind the counter would have taken it, and then it forever is on your driver's license. But um, I don't have a middle name, and I you, know, you were talking about apathetic. Um, it's you know every time it t it took a while but as i as i sort of you know as you become an adult and you meet other adults and, and now you realize you meet people who are like 
have three middle names, which is really obnoxious. Like when people do that, they have their little kid and they go, this is little Gregory, Preston, Lucius, Maxwell, Tammy Faye, Johnson. And you're like, oh, come on. But I said to my dad uh, just about four years ago, we were standing in my kitchen and I said, uh, I really didn't want to know the answer to this, but I, it, my uh, curiosity had gotten the best of me. And I said, uh, Dad, just uh, out of curiosity, why no middle name? And he gave the worst answer a parent can give. He said, I don't know. <laughs> and I thought, I wanted to hear a story. I want to hear a story about uh, your father being named Giacomo and <laughs> my mother's father being named Vincent and an argument breaking out between the families of wanting me to have the male middle, you know, my middle name as the father of the, and no. And he said, uh, did you ask your mom? And I said, no, I didn't. And he said, yeah. And I thought, wow, the, the bloom <laughs> was off the rose that early that uh, even at the hospital as, as just a young newborn, didn't want to fill out that middle name. And he said, and, and really, the worst compliment or the worst thing you can do to someone is the answer of, I don't know. And I talked to my mom uh, a few months after that. And I said, eh, Mom, uh, why no middle name? And she said, did you ask your dad? <laughs> I said, yeah. What did he say? He didn't know. Oh. I thought, wow, that is horrible parenting. So uh, apathetic at best. Did you find that... that uh having this relationship with your family was something that made you think, oh gosh, I'm going to be this other kind of thing? Or was it the kind of relationship with your family where um, it w you, know, you, were, you were deep into something and you didn't, you, you know, you, it took a lot of energy just to try and figure out what the other kind of thing was? I, I decided very early on to use them as sort of negative role models. <laughs> and, you know... You know, people always talk about role models like they have to be positive role models. But, you know, if you ever saw the documentary Scared Straight, you realize there are such things as a negative role model, too. You bring the guy to a prison, and one of the inmates pops his eyeballs out and yells, give me your damn shoes, and it scares the crap out of you. And you go, I don't want to end up like that. And you stay on the straight and narrow. And so for me... I was always like, uh, whatever the family was into, and, and it was tricky because they weren't into anything, <laughs> I, just got, I just decided to be the opposite. And so I got into sports really heavily, and they didn't like sports, and they weren't into sports, and I got into cars and building and sort of mechanical stuff, and my dad doesn't own a tool. And then later on in life, I just uh, literally use them like uh, people would use a guy who was wrong every time he gambled on the Super Bowl. You know, it's like, who do, who do you like? Who do you like? I like the Colts. Good. Put the money on the Saints. That, that's how I would do it. I'd go like, eh, I'm thinking about uh, renting out my Beechwood house. I don't know if I should rent it out or sell it. What do you think, Mom? Oh, you know, renters. They come in there. You could get some marauding bikers in there, and those guys come in and start cooking up meth and trash your place. You never get the security deposit back, and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. So you say, sell, right? Yeah, okay, great. I'll rent it out. That's, <laughs> that's how I would do it. Stick around. After the break, we'll talk to Adam Carolla about his first meeting with his future partner and collaborator, Jimmy Kimmel. It's The Sound of Young America for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by the Calgary Folk Festival. 
four days of musical concerts and collaborations in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. 68 artists perform in an urban park July 22nd through 25th, including the Abbott Brothers, St. Vincent, Michael Franti, and Roberta Flack. More information online at calgaryfolkfest.com. By Humber College, offering a two-year program dedicated to comedy. Students learn stand-up, improv, acting, and writing skills and perform in the heart of Toronto. At Humber, we make funny people funnier. More information at humbercomedy.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Hey pals, it's me, Jesse. As you already know, it's pledge drive time, and I wanted you to understand that MaximumFun.org is a lot more than just me, or even just, you know, me and Jordan, or me and Jordan and the guys from Stop Podcasting Yourself. So joining me on the phone from Chicago for this pledge break, Nick White. Hey, Nick. Hey, Jesse. Nick, I have known for, gosh, what, coming up on 10 years now, Nick? Oh, geez, something like that, uh, early in college. We were, once upon a time, I was the news director of KZSC in Santa Cruz, and a very poor news director at that. Um, Nick was my my only committed student. And thus your successor. Yeah, you thus became my successor, and later the uh, boss of my college radio station. And you actually, um, uh, unlike almost anyone else I knew in college radio, actually went into public radio as a career. Um, and uh, a big part of that is uh, working for the Sound of Young America. So, so for so people know what you do. What is it that you do for the Sound of Young America? I'm the editor, which really comes down to making your long conversations a little bit shorter and picking out the most interesting bits of them. Now, I think the Sound of Young America is probably the most casual show on public radio. Um, but it's still, it, it still requires a lot of work to make it sound the way that it does. And I know that that's something that, you know, when I hear from a public radio program director, it makes a huge difference to them. And they can hear the difference between A Sound of Young America with you working on it, Nick, and A Sound of Young America two years ago when Underqualified Me was, was doing that editing. Yeah, absolutely. And let's, we should be clear, there's still much that could be done about this show. We're a rough-and-tumble public radio show. Um, we, you know, I tell people all the time, we have about uh, a third of the staff, maybe only maybe only 25% of the staff, a normal weekly public radio show has. Yeah, you, your, uh, your other day job is working at Chicago Public Radio, who produce a lot of great shows like uh, uh, Sound Opinions and other sort of nationally syndicated hour-long shows that are similar to us. The Sound of Young America staff as it stands right now is uh, me full-time, and you paid two days a week and an intern. Our goal for this drive is maybe to expand your time some and maybe hire an associate producer to work with me a couple days a week. Um, what does a real public radio show have in terms of staff? Uh, I mean, uh, This American Life has something like nine producers. Granted, they're a very different show. They're out on the field and producing things. We're producing a show where two people are talking. Um, a Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me has uh, maybe four producers and then the host and then uh, a technical director. Um, so, you know, we have Jesse doing the hosting and producing. 
we have me cutting the show together and piecing all the elements together and kind of the technical director as well. And uh, Julia, our intern, who is the one organized person and just makes sure we don't forget anything. <laughs> you know, Nick, I, um, I don't want to undersell the contributions that you've made to the show over the past year outside of editing. You've also been working as a sort of a producer. And, you know, one of my goals for The Sound of Young America in expanding what we do is, you know, bringing more voices other than mine to the air. And one of the big things that you've been doing is helping me uh, put together pieces um, that aren't just interviews. Yeah, I mean, just this year we've had on Mark Marin, who did a great commentary. Uh, we want to have more from him. We've had Scott Simpson do a really funny kind of comedy piece. Uh, the guys from God's Pottery came into sh- studio in Chicago to talk to you and do their song. Uh, we had Sarah G on to do her Batman sketch. We also have conversations each month with the guys from the AV Club. Each of those things are, are, are just other segments we want to bring to you guys. You know, every time we run something with the guys from the AV Club, and, you know, I've been talking for a long time about wanting to do something regular with those guys because I've known them for a long time. Um, you know, I get these emails that say, man, I love these AV Club segments. It's, you know, peanut butter and chocolate. Uh, and it's your extra day a week that allows us to do that. And, um, you know, hopefully if we're able to expand your time, we'll be able to continue to expand time for doing stuff like that. Um, Nick, let's just say that somebody wanted us to be able to expand your time. What should that person do? They should go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. We've got donation links for any ability, any income. There's Unless you're unemployed or uh, live outside of the first world, you can afford it. Uh, please support what you love. And let's get back to that conversation with Adam Carolla. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Adam Carolla. He's best known as an FM talk host, the second banana on the show Love Line, and the host of The Adam Carolla Show. He's also had numerous television programs, including The Man Show on Comedy Central. These days, he's the host of The Adam Carolla Podcast, one of the Internet's most popular podcasts. When you're a kid, you sort of... um, you don't since you don't have a lot of opportunities to make choices about what you're doing in your life you just kind of mostly cruise along on other people's expectations right um and but when you're 18 or uh however old and you move out of your family's house you realize um you realize both that the choices that you've made to that point are going to affect your life in the future mm-hmm. um but also that you know the choices that you make then are going to affect your life in the future. What was it like for you when when you graduated from high school? Um, and you know, I know you were you were a good football player in high school, and you know, had some idea that you might be able to play college football. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. but, but when you graduated from high school and you and you were in that place where you were like, oh man, now I have to make choices for myself, and all my buddies that were. 3.5 students are off to, you know, UC Riverside or UCLA or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you're there and thinking, gosh, you know, junior college, what? Well, you know, for me, I had uh, put all my eggs into one basket, and that was the football jock basket, which is, uh, on hind- you know, hindsight being 2020, not a great plan. Um, I got a bunch of scholarship offers uh for little weird non football schools um i wasn't I, you know i wasn't a division 1 guy i wasn't going to go to nebraska or anything i got i read something about lewis and clark in portland 
at Lewis there's, and a, there's a school known for its football team. Powerhouse. Every year in the BCU championship game, it's uh, Lewis and Clark, either against Texas or Oklahoma. <laughs> right. Uh, Willamette. Another, or once in a while, they're, they're playing Hampshire, another other legendary. Another powerhouse. Uh, UC Davis, Cal Poly Pomona, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Some of these places don't even have programs anymore. Marshall was the only real football school that offered me a scholarship. But even Marshall, that was only... 10 years after the plane crash that killed the entire team. So uh, they were kind of rebuilding, as it were. It wasn't the Chad Pennington, uh, Randy Moss Marshall that you probably heard of more recently. But um, but I could have went to, to some school for free, theoretically, even if it was UC Davis. And I'm sure they have some sort of architectural program or something over there, engineering or something I could have got into. But I was a horrible, horrible student. And my family was wildly apathetic. So I didn't do anything with it. I just had a stack of envelopes and papers and things I never really filled out. And I, I didn't know how to fill them out. It's I, hard, right? I mean, I remember, I remember applying for college. And I, I just remember just being completely overwhelmed by the whole thing and just not wanting to deal with it. Yeah, I never took the SATs or PSATs. or I, I never really had a discussion. I, I don't know what my... See, back then, counselors weren't counselors. They were parole officers. <laughs> they didn't counsel you. They just, their counseling was, hey, stay out of trouble. Shut your mouth. You know, but there wasn't any, hey, this guy seems bright, but possibly functionally illiterate. But, but you know, he's getting offers from schools. Uh, you know, he doesn't come from a lot of money. Maybe we could get him a free education if he studied the PSATs and then he took the PSATs and, you know, got a, got a decent score in the SATs and took an algebra class. I was taking like basic math and stuff. But I, 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 think, I, I think I was a dummy. I think they knew I was a dummy. I was a dummy. I was a horrible student. And my, my family somewhere in the back of their mind was, again, when you're apathetic, it's, it's, you're consistently apathetic. You don't get up for almost anything. And they've, did the same with college. I'm not blaming them. I didn't, I didn't say to my dad, hey, help me fill out this uh, paperwork so I can go to UC Davis for free. I, I've always said it this way. My college was going to be free for my parents no matter what. So <laughs> if I got a scholarship to UC Davis, it'd be free. And if I decided to go for U, to UC Davis, if I decided to go to Harvard, it was still going to be free to my dad because he wasn't going to pay. So that was that. It was, it was, you know, made no never mind to him. And so I ended up getting, um, I had the coach from uh, Valley College, who was uh, an a-hole. And um, he, his name was Chuck something. And uh, he said to me, you come play for LA Valley College. He scouted me in high school. You play here for a year you you get your grades going and, and then you can transfer to UC Davis. And I was like, oh, okay, that's what I'll do. And and I kind of thought I was big time because I was all-Valley football player and I, I led the team in tackles and blah, blah, blah. And so I thought, well, I'll go grace this junior college with my, my presence for a year. They'll be lucky to have me. And then I'll go off to some powerhouse like Willamette or Lewis and Clark. <laughs> <laughs> and what I didn't realize is that the competition level at uh, at a junior college in the San Fernando Valley was a lot higher 
than the schools I was being recruited to play at. I had it backwards because the reality is, is the San Fernando Valley is this hotbed of, of great, you know, uh, f- uh, football athletes. And there was two colleges in the entire valley to service like 40 great high school programs. So it'd be like if I was a wide receiver and I was going out for wide out over at Santa Monica Junior High and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't start. That's why I couldn't start. There's like a ton of great players on our team, and I hurt my back, and then I was just like, oh, screw it. I'm going to clean carpets. But what was it like to to have this? I mean, like, you've got um, – you're describing a sort of uh, uh, a family life that isn't much of anything and a school life, an academic life that's not much of anything, and you've sort of built your identity around being being a good football player, being a, you know, being a jock, you know, yes. well-liked, funny – Popular jock Popular guy. jock, yes. Um, and when you lose the cornerstone of that and you have to go work cleaning carpets, what was that like for you? Um, demoralizing. It was, it was horrific. It was basically one thing I was good at, and I wasn't good at that anymore. And then I was just a stupid non-jock. Like, it's one thing to be a stupid jock, but at least you're a jock. <laughs> now I was a stupid carpet cleaner which was uh, utterly demoralizing. So, yeah, I was, I was very depressed. It was, it was a really hard time. Uh, the economy was horrible. Uh, you know, like you, you, hear, you hear about how bad the economy is now. They go, we haven't had this kind of unemployment since 1983. Well, that was the year I went out looking for a job with uh, no education, <laughs> which you, was you were, 1983. You were, looking, you were looking for the kind of jobs that are the, the first to get hit when the economy turns down, too. Yeah, I didn't, but there was nothing. I was just going to supermarkets and construction sites and going, hey, man, uh, you need a labor? Do you need a box boy? You need some of the stock shelves? I'm like, no. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Adam Carolla, a radio and television personality who's transitioned to become an independent podcaster. He spent his 20s as a laborer and carpenter. When and in, in how did you figure out that you might be able to be good at doing something else? How long did it take? Well, my uh, first construction job, I got about two blocks from where we're sitting right now, which is uh, in Silver Lake, California, and uh, literally down the street. Uh, that's when I, at 19, began my uh, construction labor job. I was a laborer. People do a sort of weird semi-racist math where, oh, you're a well-spoken white guy, so what'd you do, start off in the carpenter's union or the apprentice union or doing finish work as an apprentice? Now, I tore ivy off the side of hill houses and dragged it up the stairs along the side of the house and threw it in the dumpster up on the street, which is a horrible job. And then we started digging and just dug ditches. And that was it. And there was nothing... It wasn't like, oh, hey, you over there. Oh, you're different. No, it was just uh, here, get in a hole, pick up a shovel. You don't know anything. Your gift of gab has given you the ability to really dig holes yeah. extra well. Uh, I didn't know, you know, as far as the gift of gab stuff goes, it, it was, um, I always say it was like having gasoline uh, 100 years before the internal combustion engine was invented. It was like, what is this? What are you going to do with this? Like, neither here nor there. Not a, I'd be the funniest guy on the construction site. There, were, there wasn't a reasonable application for it, at least not where I grew up. I mean, no one told me to shut up and I wasn't funny. It was just more like, so what? You can talk. Now start shoveling. 
it was not a viable way to make a living. Let's put it that way. There was no outlet for it. There was no, and, and, you know, it, it was actually worse than shut up. It was just like, um, huh? <laughs> so it, it wasn't even a discussion. Like, I'm sorry. I was shoveling. Yeah, that was it. And, uh, that was it. Everyone on the construction, no one in the construction, it's not like, uh, it wasn't uh, Schwab's. There wasn't a lot of talent scouts floating around the construction <laughs> site. It was just a lot of, uh, hey, shut up and get back to work. You there with a the shovel. I'm going to make you a star. Yeah. <laughs> Sign here. Here's a cigar. Um, You'll be driving a Stutz Bearcat by this time next year. I'll tell you, kid, you got it. <laughs> um, how did that... Um, how did that change over that over that ten years between um, between when you uh, uh, when you started working for a living and when you started working as a as a radio host? Um, I was in my early twenties. I was, I was probably like twenty two, twenty three. I was like, this blows. So I was like, all right, I I, I was um, uh, realistic with myself. I, I thought, what are you good at? And I thought, well, you're good with your hands. You're good at swinging a hammer. And um, you got a good sense of humor. That that was my realistic uh, assessment of myself. We should all do that on a semi-regular basis. You know, just what are you realistically good at? I, I was never like, I'm going to be a pop sensation or something. I was like, I knew I couldn't sing. I knew I wasn't a model. You know, I knew I wasn't good at a ton of things. But I, I thought I had a good sense of humor. Realistically, you could be funny, and maybe one day you'd be able to dance on network television. That I knew I've always... It's the only time I feel free yeah. is when I'm dancing. <laughs> sure. And so I, uh, I was like, all right, you got a good sense of humor. Well, what's that mean? And I, and I realized it doesn't mean anything. I, don't, I never did a school play. I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know who... I don't know anyone in the business. Um, so I talked to a friend of mine's mom... And um, she knew something about the groundlings. And she's like, why don't you take a groundling class? And I just saved up my meager construction money. And I, I never had car insurance or health insurance or dental or anything. But I saved up, you know, 250 bucks and I took a groundlings class. And, and I was good at it. I was kind of raw and I didn't know which way stage left was or upstage was or any of that crap. And I, I'd never been on a stage before. But it was like, I was funny felt good. I like all of a sudden I was around people that were funny and, and interesting and interested and smart. And I was like, wow, man, who are you guys? This is cool. Cause I'd come from this world where, you know, you do some Seinfeld ask observation and it'd be like, yeah, who cares? Shut up, dude. <laughs> you know, like I was just told like, shut up or why are you talking? Or, oh God. You know, my friends would start mocking me all the time. And, uh, and all of a sudden I was around, People that were like, hey, that's funny. You should write that down. And I was like, what? I, I thought I should shut up. And they're like, no, write it down. That's good. That's a good, that's a good idea. So uh, it felt pretty good, but I was still completely rudderless. And um, I tried some stand-up, but I wasn't much good at it. And uh, I, I liked improv a lot better, and I liked collaborating a lot better. But I couldn't write. I was sort of functionally illiterate. So I, I, I always saw myself as more of a writer and a creator and less a performer, but if you don't know how to write, it, it makes it makes it difficult to do that. And um, I just sort of said uh, I was really philosophical. I was like, um, "You're 22. You're 23 years old. 
uh, you're not going to be an overnight sensation. Uh, you're never going to hit the big time. Um, you're not going to be a household name or any kind of name. But by the time you're 30, you should be in some position to do something. And that doesn't mean hit the big time. Just just means like, I don't know, work for a greeting card company or you know, uh, some guys are doing animated uh, Saturday morning cartoons. Maybe you could sit in the writer's room with them and, and spitball ideas. And that was about it for me. It, it seems like just the uh, just that modest goal, the idea of being able to do something with this skill that you knew you had was still a pretty big goal for you, given that you had, you know, you had sort of been beaten down and beaten yourself down at this uh, at this, you know, at this creative act, this being funny part of who you were. Yeah, I, it was. And, you know, to be clear, I was never beaten down, although I know what you're saying. It was worse than, I, at least if someone said, you're not funny, I would have went, oh, yeah, I'll show you. And then I would have been the next James Cagney or something. I would have been uh, on my a wedding night performing for firemen down the street, you know, like I would have gotten, I would have got a fire in my belly, like right. uh, Madonna or something that, that kind of criticism oftentimes while it creates eating disorders and cutters also creates a sort of motivation. I got a worse version of that, of which was, huh? Which is really the worst thing, which is sort of like, I didn't think I wasn't funny and I was never beaten down. What I had was a non-entity. What I had was a non-skill. And, you know, my goals, I I intentionally set them fairly modestly, like anything but construction, doing something that involves your mind. I mean, literally being a tour guide at Universal Studios, something where you're not out in the sun or up on the roof, you know, banging, banging some fascia boards. That was all I wanted out of it. And I gave myself until the age of 30 to do it. You were like 29 and four fifths or something like that when you, when you met Jimmy Kimmel, right? I, uh, I turned, I turned 30 in the, uh, year of, uh, 1994 would, would be the year I would turn 30. Uh, my birthday is May 27th. And, I met Jimmy at the end of April, beginning of May um, in 1994. You so I was desperate, yes. I was, I was literally a few weeks away from turning 30 and not doing anything. You, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of, like, outside of somebody signing you up because you've got the face— um, there's not a, a sort of more classic, uh, more classic how I made my first, got my first break in show business story than yours, which is that, uh, Kimmel was the, Kimmel was the sports guy on, uh, uh, popular morning show here in Los Angeles and was doing a sort of promotional or charity boxing match, called in, said he said he needed someone to train him in boxing. And you literally just called the station and said, I'll do it. I was working as a boxing trainer at that time um, at a place called Bodies in Motion, which there's a chain of them out here. And I was working as a, I was teaching a very early morning class, like a 6 a.m. class. And then I was swinging a hammer uh, during the day. So it wasn't a total disconnect. Like 
I, I built a gym in Pasadena um, with the promise that I'd get to teach boxing there. For Again, for me, it was just one more thing that wasn't construction that involved something that I enjoyed. And at that point, I was just kind of making peace with my life, which was, well, look, you're not going to be rich and maybe you're never going to have medical or dental, but at least you'll get to pursue a passion of yours, which was boxing. And, and, and teaching people, uh, teaching my boxing classes was combining two of the things I really, three of the things I love to do, which is impart wisdom slash knowledge, uh, about boxing, boxing and conversation, you know, uh, vocal sk- skills. So, uh, it was so much better than construction that, you know, to 20 bucks a class seemed more than enough <laughs> for me to do it. So I was doing it and, um, the part of the story that people don't really realize is Jimmy was fighting another guy at the station and I didn't care. I didn't want to meet Jimmy Kimmel. I wanted to meet the other guy a little <laughs> more than I wanted to meet Jimmy because Jimmy had only been there a couple of months and the other guy had been there about five years. So I decided it'd be nice to train the other guy, uh, but I ended up with Jimmy and that was just complete happenstance. I didn't, I called up a bunch of times. They never called me back. I went down there to the station, I couldn't get into the building because uh, I went there before my class at like six in the morning, and I finally went there. Uh, somebody told me the building opened up at like seven a.m. or seven thirty or something, and I had a I taught the beginning part of my class in Pasadena, and I had a guy cover my second part of the class, second half of the class. Thanks, Tree. His <laughs> name was Roundtree, but we called him Tree. See, that's a cool nickname. And, uh, and we, and I went back and got into the building, but then I couldn't get into the radio station. I just got up to the ninth floor and I stood there in the lobby, like the door was locked. So I just stood there by the elevators and, uh, a guy eventually, uh, elevator came up and some guy was coming in. And then to this day, I don't really remember if he was like, uh, the sparklets guy or the guy that filled the vending machines, or <laughs> I don't know who the guy was, but the guy came in and he had like one of those key cards or he knew that he knew the the code, you know, for the back door. There was like a back door down a hall. And I said, oh, uh, are you going inside? Because I couldn't get in. And he said, uh, yeah, I got to drop something off or something like that. I said, oh, could you tell whoever's in there that there's a boxing trainer who's here? And um, I'm, I'll just be waiting by the elevators. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go. So I didn't tell him to tell Jimmy. I didn't know what Jimmy looked like. I didn't know what the other guy looked like. Um, I just told him to go in. And he went in, and, and, and as it turns out, as luck would have it, the other guy was, like, out on assignment, like, in the, uh, you know, party patrol van out giving away beer koozies or something, and Jimmy was there. And I I sat around for, like, 20 minutes, like, because Jimmy was probably writing a sports cast or performing or doing something, whatever. Well, I sat by the elevator for like half an hour, and then uh, at some point, Jimmy just came down the hall, just just came down that long hall from the back door, and uh, he said, uh, I said, I'm a boxing trainer, you know, I'm not a weirdo, I'm not a fan, <laughs> just a boxing trainer. <laughs> Let's be clear here. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I just want to train you to box. And he just, he, to, to kind of my surprise, he just went, all right, <laughs> and I said, uh well, what's good for you? And he said, I don't know. How about today? And I was like, yeah, awesome. You know, what time are you done? He said, uh, done about noon. I said, uh, I'll give you directions to the gym. He said, yeah, okay. See you there. I said, all right. Bye-bye. And that was it. Next thing you know, he's at the gym. 
you've been working with him now for uh, more than 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think of him when, when he showed up at the gym? I was uh, I was very curious, like he uh, about his journey and how he'd worked in radio. He was a radio guy, and he'd worked in Phoenix, and he'd worked in Tampa, and he worked in Seattle, and he worked in uh, I don't I can't remember if he worked in Vegas, but I know he worked in Palm Springs, and he w- he'd been fired from every job <laughs> he'd been on. And by the way, that's radio. They got a right. young Jimmy Kimmel, and they're like, hit the bricks, kid. We never want to see you around here. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, you know? <laughs> like, uh, as a matter of fact, Jimmy and I were together for a while, and we'd always go on the air together, and the program director was like, you two, you don't work together. You stay apart. And I remember one time uh, a program director offered me a radio job, you know, many years ago, and, and, and I said, uh, I got an idea. How about me and Jimmy work together? This is, you know, way before the man show or anything else. I said, how about me and Jimmy work together? And we, we do a me and Jimmy like radio show. And the guy's like, uh, Kimmel, he's a behind the scenes guy. (laughs) So radio guys are inherently stupid. And unfortunately they're your boss. So Jimmy was considered sort of a liability. Like he'd just been fired from every gig he'd had. And, um, I was really enthralled. Like, how does this radio, this nomadic radio life work? Like, one minute you're in Tampa and you're picking up and moving to, you know, now you're moving to Seattle. Then you're going from Seattle to, to uh, you know, Phoenix. Like, what the hell, man? And literally packing up the U-Haul and heading out with, the, like, young family kind of stuff. It's weird. It's like, it's like you know, I don't know. It would have been like playing AAA baseball or something, getting traded every other year to some other crappy team, you know? So uh, I was really enthralled with like a radio and how it worked and how you got in, who you knew and, and all that stuff. And, you know, we spent a small portion of the time actually training and boxing and most of the time drinking Snapples and uh, talking about radio and comedy, you know, because I'd always been interested in radio, but I've never, I never spoke to anyone. I never, again, it was just that sort of vacuum known as uh, North Hollywood. Like I I never knew a human being that did anything other than the crappy jobs I was doing. After the break, we'll talk with Adam about his days on the wildly popular syndicated radio show, Loveline. It's the sound of young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, public radio international. Hey guys, it's me, Jesse, breaking in one more time to this great interview with uh, the always hilarious Adam Carolla. I wanted to introduce you to one more person on the MaximumFun.org team who you may not know. Say hi, Julia. Hey, everybody. Uh, that's Julia Smith. Some of you might have met her at Max FunCon. She is our uh, current Sound of Young America intern, um, a graduate of the University of San Francisco, a postponer of graduate school. Um, uh, a person looking for a job in a tough job market. Uh, welcome, Julia. Uh, thank you very much, Jesse. Okay, so first of all, uh, when you're around here in my second bedroom, what, what kind of stuff do you do right now? What kind of stuff do I do? Uh, well, I guess I kind of end up doing a lot of everything. Um, I've sort of seen how it all works now. Uh, the magic behind the curtain. Um, <laughs> In other words, I make you walk the dog and get my dry cleaning. <laughs> oh, actually, you know, I kind of—I've—I've I've never been asked to walk Coco, but you know, I'd be willing to do it. <laughs> um, you know, 
one of one of my goals for this thing is to be able to hire you at least part time to work on the show as an associate producer, expanding some of the things that you've been doing to this point. Um, things like calling people on the phone. Just the other day, we had a conversation about how. I hate to call people on the telephone, right. and you're actually uh, not only willing to do it, but competent at it. Uh, I do enjoy talking to people on the phone, and um, I I prefer to do it when I can. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll I'll do that newfangled email thing when I have to. Um, I have built, whereas I have built my entire career around avoidance of having to directly uh, interact with people. Um, you are actually the kind of competent person who I think might be able to get on the telephone uh, with our good friends in the publicity department of, say, the National Broadcasting Corporation and book a great right. guest. Exactly. Julia, let me ask you this question. A-, a lot of people out there are thinking, you know, this sounds like a bloated operation. What are these people doing with this national radio show that they're, pr- that they're suggesting might have upwards of two employees? <laughs> Um, and certainly I can understand that. Uh, are you willing to work cheap? I'm, I'm definitely willing to work for cheap. <laughs> I just don't want anyone to think that I'm some kind of crazy, uh, crazy wild man spending, money, spending their money left and right. I think the average income of, uh, of a public radio producer here in the United States is uh, well under $40,000 a year. And uh, I'm willing to match or half that, Julia. Well, that sounds like a great offer. <laughs> um, uh, if people want to donate to support this operation and uh, get us the money so that hopefully, cross your fingers, we can at least hire Julia to work as an associate producer full-time, visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Of course, there are tons of great gifts, many of which, Julia, you actually used your, television, your telephone skills to obtain for people. I did. I talked to people on the phone, and I smoothed them, and I got them to send us cool gifts, and... I'm hoping to send out those gifts to people who pledge. You're the one who operates the postage machine. I do. Um, MaximumFun.org slash donate is the place to go. MaximumFun.org slash donate. And remember, there isn't much time left in the drive. It ends with our big finale show, May 28th. So the time to do it is not tomorrow or later this afternoon. Do it right now. Thank you guys so much. And uh, let's get back to Adam Carolla. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. We're talking with the radio, television, film, book in the fall, basically most media personality, Adam Carolla. Here's a clip from Loveline, the call-in advice show he co-hosted for many years with Dr. Drew Pinsky. The question for you is, there is this guy that I was kind of dating, and um, there's a problem, though. It's causing some problems between my family and I. Uh-huh. Uh, this guy, him and my sister, they uh, had sex at a party on New Year's, and he was really trashed and didn't remember it, mm. but she did. And so, like, I kind of knew about it, but I didn't know how serious it was between them. And then, um, like, afterwards, him and I met, like, we were hanging out, and then him and I have started dating. And now it's kind of causing some problems between my sister and I. How, how old is your sister? Eleven. <laughs> no, she's 17. How old is he? He's 20. How long have you been dating him? Um, for a little over a month now. Mm-hmm. What does he do for a living? Um, he goes to school. Junior college? Yeah. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> and now does he... Does In San Diego, I thought that was against the law down there. 
I, by the way, you got San Diego State right you there. You got San Diego State. You don't need a junior college. You I have San Diego State. I know, I know, I know. That it's really, it's like building a junior college on top of a junior college. You have San Diego State. <laughs> I don't understand that. I know, I don't, I don't. And, and who doesn't get into San Diego State, by the way? <laughs> My God, that, 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 that junior college over there just must, must be people that are just, you know, have like uh, arms growing out of their foreheads and stuff. <laughs> Loveline was and actually still is, although you no longer work there, a um, uh, sort of sex and relationship advice show um, mm-hmm. targeted at uh, basically young adults, you know, 16 to 25-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Um, Radio is a weird thing because you, um, you know, you have this huge audience, but you don't have any, du- you don't have any direct relationship with them. You can't see them. You don't know when they think something that you just said is funny or not, um, right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Loveline is an unusual case in that every person who calls in is revealing something that is so spectacularly intimate about their lives. Like you listen to Loveline and just like the stuff that you know, it's just call after call of like sure. ten out of ten level of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like for you to, to jump into that situation where, um, you know, you have this fan base, but you don't ever talk to them except when they're, you know, thinking about killing themselves or they think they may have an an STD or something like that. Um, I'd listened to Loveline for quite some time before I became the host because I grew up out here and Loveline originally was on Sunday nights out here, um, I think at midnight. So I was intimately familiar with Dr. Drew and the the program. Uh, I actually even called in once as a prank, I think, Loveline, like when I was like 19. So it was, it was this franchise out here. And, and so it was the, the the first thing, uh, first thought was it was sort of surreal hosting the show that I'd listened to, uh, back to baseball. It's one thing to make it to the to the show to the major leagues. It's another thing to sort of play for the team you grew up watching. You know, and you know, for me to be in radio was exciting, but for me to take Jimmy's old job in Seattle would have been, you know, I didn't know anything about the town or the station or any of that stuff. For me to be on Loveline, sitting next to Doctor Drew, was surreal because I'd been listening to the show for what felt like a lifetime. Uh, so. You know, as far as the fans go and uh, as far as radio goes, it, it, it was a good fit for me because I don't need the roar of the crowd or the applause or the laughter or any of that stuff. I, I look at that sort of a hindrance and it even even in a weird way, I, it doesn't make me uncomfortable, but I don't feel like you can get to the things you can get to on a more intimate one-on-one level when, uh, when you had a late night talk show you actually you actually tried very hard to not have an audience if i remember correctly yes i was trying to tell the powers that be over at comedy central you know a we should do something different but b uh an audience uh sort of obliges you to act a certain way and you don't realize it even sometimes but you you, you do like i have been uh you know, Dr. Drew and I used to go out and do stage announcements, for instance. Our, a lot of affiliates would have big concerts and they'd invite us and they'd always want us to come out and do bring on some band. And, you know, we'd be standing backstage 
And uh, we'd be at a place like Irvine Meadows or RFK Stadium or something. I mean, sometimes there's 50,000 people there. And we'd just be standing backstage. We weren't particularly agitated or anything. And I'd say, like, "Uh, what do you want to do? And he'd say, well, I'll come out and say I'm Adam Carolla. And then you'll come out and say Dr. Drew. And we're from Loveline. And then we'll just bring on Cracker or whatever (laughs) band we're bringing on back then. And and so I go, all right. And then you'd walk out on stage, and there was, you know, 25,000 people there. And all of a sudden, you'd grab the mic, and you'd go, I hear Irvine knows how to party. And all of a sudden, you're screaming. You're just screaming at the top of your lung. And you're you looking even, around you for a T-shirt gun. Yeah, and you don't even realize, like, what, what's come over you. And it's the audience. Like, you just can't, you can't be in front of that audience without trying to get a reaction from them. And it's sort of why every best man speech turns into a five-minute stand-up routine. All of a sudden, some guy who you work with, who's not funny at all and has never been funny, uh, is going to get up and say a few words about you. And he's, he's turned into Rodney Dangerfield. Why? There's 200 people sitting there looking at him. And it's like you're compelled. And... That's fine, and it's why every late-night show has basically followed the same format, which is get up and tell jokes. And you're compelled to do that when you have an audience. And I thought, wouldn't it be more interesting to have a conversation? But you can't have a conversation in front of a live audience because they're sitting there, and if you don't hear something from them every, let's put it this way, 30 seconds of no laughter feels like eternity when you're sitting in front of a live audience so you whether you like it or not or know it or not are almost forced to change your cadence in your rhythm and your energy and to start doing things that you normally might not want to do and radio is a place where the audience is in their cars or they're in their bathrooms or they're separated and you're not nearly you're not compelled and if, if you listen to a radio show, when they do a live show, like, hey, we're at Senior Frogs out here in Tustin. Come on down and join us. Be part of the show. They'll do that show once a year. It's a totally different show. All of a sudden, they're yelling, and they're you know more aggressive, and they're uh, sniping at one another. And it's just a completely different vibe. And so I wanted to do a TV show where we didn't have that element, but uh, Comedy Central didn't see it that way and so we ended up with sort of something in between which is never a good thing you talked you you talked uh about um that radio lifestyle that uh jimmy kimmel had before he sort of uh got his footing in the um entertainment industry And, and that's a big part of radio and i know that you've you know you you actually made a feature film that was very good by the way thanks um and uh you know you you have had successful television projects but at the same time you know when you're working in television you're still you know it's make a pilot and see what happens mm-hmm. um i i wonder if one of the appeals of podcasting is that it's something that um that you control. It's like a, it's like something that you can create and there's no other person that, that says not, not that says, you know, you can't say that word so much as that says you can't continue to do this thing that you've put a lot of your heart into. Yeah. Well, and it's like, 
you know, we there's this balance everyone tries to strike but between doing their own thing and having total creative control and then things like getting compensated for what you're doing. And anytime you ask, you know, anytime you put your hand out, you're letting somebody control you, whether you know it or not. You say to your dad, hey, dad, uh, you know, I'm in high school. Uh, can you buy me a car? And he says, uh, yeah, but you got to wash it every Sunday. You got to take the garbage out on Thursday nights and you got to mow the lawn and your curfew is 10 o'clock. Well, that's fine. He's leasing you a car. Uh, if the neighbor's dad came over and said, listen, I'm not going to lease you a car, but I'd like you to trim my lawn and your curfew is 10 o'clock, you'd be F off, old man, and get off my property. And it's the same thing as an adult. It becomes work. You know, your boss says, here's your paycheck. Not so fast. Here's what I need you to do for your paycheck. And when it comes to what we do, it's the same thing in a sense where you can go off and do your own thing all day, every day. I can just put a trash can on my head and start talking all day, every day. And I can say whatever I want all day, every day. I'm not going to make a penny. Uh, you want to go on primetime network TV, you're going to get paid. But somebody's going to have a conversation with you about what you can say and what you can't say. For example, they won't let you put a trash can on your head as badly as you might want oh, to. God, I'd love to put that thing on my head. <laughs> and so then there becomes this balance. And that balance is, well, I want to say what I want to say. And I want to say what I want to say when I want to say it. And who I want to say it to. And yeah, but I want to get paid. So how do you figure out a way to say what you want to say and do what you want to do and get paid? And that's the challenge of this new podcast technology. But creatively, I think it's always been a challenge. Uh, I'm sure, you know, a thousand years ago, somebody said, I'd like to paint something. And someone went, well, hold on. I want you to paint a picture of my wife sitting on a throne, you know? And they went, well, I don't want to paint that. I want to paint water lilies. Well, good. Go ahead and paint water lilies, but we're not going to pay you. Well, we'll pay you 200 years after you're dead, but we're not going to pay you now. So some guy had to go in and go to the castle and set up his easel and do his painting of the old hag sitting on the throne, you know, or, you know, petting a Persian cat or whatever they did back then. I'm, it's been going on for as long as creativity has been going on. Hey, I want to write a book on whatever. Well, you're not going to get to write that book. You want to write a book on this because this book's going to sell and that's where people know you from. And that's how it goes. Um, I understand how that goes. And, you know, people shouldn't be naive. They're giving you money for a reason. They don't, they're not giving you a bunch of money and go, hey, go do your own thing. They're giving you a bunch of money and they're going, now here's what we'd like. It, it's, by the way, why lobbyists should be pulled out of Washington and nobody gives away money and doesn't want anything in return. And that's the game. And you try to strike a balance. You're like, uh, okay, I'm going to uh, get a paycheck from you and I'm not going to use this word, that word, and the other word on the air. And I will talk about your product uh, three times an hour. And in between, I'm going to do my own thing within these, within, within these confines. And it's, it's not, you know, people look at it as, you know, creative handcuffs. It's more of a football field. There's lines. You can run to the right, you can run to the left, but eventually you're going to go out of bounds 
and you have to try to do what you can do within the confines of this 100-yard football field. And that's what you attempt to do. Well, Adam, speaking of confines, we're confined on time, and uh, we're plumb out of it. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on this. Uh, Jess, I'd like to talk about myself for another hour and a half, <laughs> if that's possible. So let's go. Let's make it happen. Adam Carolla is the host of the Adam Carolla Podcast. You can find him online at adamcarolla.com. Hey, it's Jesse one last time. You know, our friend Adam Carolla was talking about how difficult it is to make entertainment in Hollywood. It's no less difficult to make any kind of media. That's why I'm here making independent media. The Sound of Young America is in its 10th year. I don't answer to anyone besides myself. You know, we send this show out to public radio stations and we love their support and we're so proud to be associated with Public Radio International. But here at The Sound of Young America, I'm the one calling the shots. It's the stuff that I believe in that I think is important that I want to share with you. The reason we can do that is because we're not supported by advertisers. We're supported by you, the listener, directly. If you think that the future of media is about people who really care about things, supporting the things that they really care about, then support us. You can give us $2 a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month. You can be like our awesome pals who have given us $100 and $200 a month because they really believe in what we're doing. What's important to me is that you give. Our goal is 1,000 new donors, and I think we can make it to that goal. Visit MaximumFund.org slash donate and give. Here's the best part of giving, frankly. It's not that you get these shows. You get these shows anyway for free. It's that every time you listen, you'll have a smile on your face because you'll know that you're part of it. You're what's making it happen. It's a wonderful feeling. I get emails and uh, Twitter messages all the time about how great people feel to support something that they actually care about. They tell me about that warm feeling that overcomes them every time they hear a show that they paid for. Not in a transactional way, that they had the choice to pay for and they chose to do it. MaximumFun.org slash donate. And thank you so much to the hundreds, maybe even thousands, of people who have supported us already. <laughs>